Stories, fables, ghostly tales. Welcome listeners to your lovely new episode, which was supposed to be Dracula, but instead is a set of two new series of old-time radio stories called Crime Classics. Mates, I've been sick for the past two days, but recovering well. And instead of pushing myself through Dracula and not delivering a great quality level of audio, I wanted to instead reach a happy medium. I decided to edit and master two OTRs as my stopgap to recover by Friday. Originally, I was not going to upload any episode today, but knowing you lovelies miss out on Monday, I just couldn't have you miss another one from me. I can't do that to you folks. But seeing as I can't be on the mic for too long, I'll stop here and let you know the titles of both tales and as well as my thank yous, as I'll be signing off early tonight to go rest. Also, it's nothing serious, just a stomach virus, which had me sleeping for ages. Either way though, I'm on the mend. Now your first tale is The Sudden Death, and the second tale, The Shrapneled Body. Little oddity for you folks, whilst I was listening to this first tale, it dawned on me that these must be true stories, and folks, they are. They're a bit strange and a little different. So what you're hearing today are all true tales from way, way back, ranging from the 1700s to the 1800s and all different kinds of eras. This show is a little different than most OTRs, but I'm sure you'll love it. Let me know though. I want to thank my three mythical level supporters, my Ode Night Tea Titans, Matthew J. Bauer, Maya, and Solstra. I wish I was well enough to thank you three gems of people with your own unique set of stories today, but rest assured, next episode I will. Thank you so much for your support. Just jaw-dropping as always. My white tea warlords, I own cows and Lee Bauer, thank you for your amazing support, mates, and I look forward to writing more tales for you two this Friday. And of course, my Ograin forces, Chad Warren, Just Heather, Lorraine Grisanto, Paige Marcini, Peter Raffelli, Tasha Moncrief, Christina Boyd, Divided by Zero, Tristan Cassidy, and Dolphin and Cow. All of you remind me why I love doing this so, so much. The amazing support all of you give. It's why I couldn't just abstain from delivering you an episode. You guys and girls are the reason I go the extra mile, even when I'm sick. Cheers, mates, and I hope you enjoy your remastered episodes. And I will catch you Friday, right as rain, for another Dracula story. Take it easy, mates, and see you soon. Till next, we meet. Good evening. This is Crime Classics. I am Thomas Highland. I'm going to tell you another true crime story. Listen. The man who just fell down the stairs is Colonel James Fisk, Jr. Although the colonel is a man given to the consumption of dozens of Blue Point oysters and bottles of heady wine at a sitting, his friends were given to pointing him out as a man inordinately steady on his feet. So why did he tumble down the stairs, and in New York's Grand Central Hotel, no less, where stair tumbling was frowned upon? The colonel didn't slip. He wasn't pushed. He was shot. The sudden presence of two bullets in him had upset his equilibrium. The man who's running away is the man who just shot the colonel. His name, Edward S. Stokes. Until recently, the colonel's very dear friend. 
There he goes. And tonight, my report to you on the checkered life and sudden death of Colonel James Fisk, Jr. Crime Classics. A series of true crime stories taken from the records and newspapers of every land from every time. Your host each week, Mr. Thomas Hyland, connoisseur of crime, student of violence, and teller of murders. Now, once again, Thomas Hyland. Colonel Fisk lay at the bottom of the stairs a few minutes before four o'clock on a Saturday afternoon, January the 6th, 1872. He was dying. His life was coming to an end. And he would be sorely missed by his family, Mrs. Fisk and the children, and by his intimates, among whom were Jay Gould, Boss Tweed, and the heavier stockholders of the day. A man dying, and I know the precise instant when his dying began. It started some months ago in a rather ornate house in Washington Square. Two women were talking, and the younger one said, Annie, how can I meet Colonel Fisk? That was the instant. And the older one said, <laughs> Dearie, dearie, dearie. But the younger one was not young enough to take dearie for an answer. I mean it, Annie. I want to meet him. He's so wealthy, isn't he? And all I have is a black and white silk dress and an empty purse. So very empty, dear Annie. Oh, orphans in the rain and empty purses sadden me so, dear Josie. And I've heard he's coming here tonight to visit with you. The dear Colonel says I set such a good table. Uh, dear Josie. Yes? Walk over there to that cabinet, dear Josie. In the very bottom drawer, you will find two candlesticks given to me by the minister from Egypt. Get them. Yes. They are heavy, aren't they? Now put them on the table. Mm -hmm. And light them. Good. Now blow them out. Gently. Well, Annie? Dear Josie, will you join the dear Colonel and me for dinner tonight? So nice of you to ask. I'd be delighted, dear Annie. And so it was that Colonel Fisk and Josie Mansfield met. It was a highly successful meeting. I kiss your hand, Josie. You're a very sweet man. <laughs> Isn't she a dear? So lovely. And so poor. So sad. The colonel was a man easily touched. And this was the era for young widows, beautiful and penniless. It was the era for weeping at the mere thought of such a situation. It was a decade of compassion and champagne. And this night, the meeting night, was one of the most poignant of the decade. Tomorrow, Josie, a jewel to lie against the throat. Oh, Colonel. My carriage will call for you at noon and bring you to me. And where will you be? At Tiffany. The necklace counter? Of course, my dear. More wine. <laughs> Diamonds become you. Oh, Colonel. Oh, 
một cái nợ. Look at it, dear. You like it? It's very nice. And it's all yours. Oh, thank you. I've always wanted a home of my own. And servants of my own. Six. Kiss me, Colonel. Good evening, Colonel. Evening, Quimby. This is Mr. Stoke. May I take your cane, sir? Thank you, Quimby. Is, uh... The mistress is in the drawing room. She's waiting for you. This way, Stoke. Hello, Colonel. And you must be the Colonel's best friend, Mr. Stoke. I hope this is no imposition, ma'am. Preparing dinner? Certainly not. I just sat here all day, listening to the new presents the Colonel sent me. While the servants made ready. Do you like the new music box, my dear? It reminds me of you when you're away from me. <laughs> Such a pretty speech. How fortunate you are, Colonel. Oh, wait till you taste her pheasant a la Esther. I can hardly wait. Uh, <clears throat> now, uh, uh, will you two excuse me for a moment? Where are you going, Colonel? I left a small package for you out in the carriage, my dear. And oh, of I... course, you'll excuse me. So, you're Mr. Stoke. So you're Josie. I must say he was right. You are elegant. He was right. You are very lovely. You're younger than he told me. And you... You're... What? You are. Will you help me light the candles? Josie. Will you help me with the fireplace? Josie. The music box is run down, will you? Josie. You won't help me with anything. Yes, I am. You're very wicked. At the time Josie whispered this tender criticism, Mr. Edward Stokes was five feet nine inches high. His head was covered with glossy curls, his complexion clear, his features regular, and his eyes dark blue. He was dressed in the height of fashion, and his diamond studs gleamed brilliantly. And after the colonel returned with a forgotten package... Oh, a ruby pendant. Thank you, colonel. You're very welcome, and after the wine was drunk and venison devoured, and the fingers dipped in the lemon water, after that evening of old friends and new, after that, there was a new day. And there was this. Good morning, Mr. Stoke. Good morning, Quimby. Is, um... The mistress is in the sitting room. She's waiting for you. Thank you, my man. Josie. Edward. Oh, wait, Edward. I was out this morning early shopping. Here, I bought something for you. Okay. Josie, a pearl stick pen. There was no need for you to... Oh, yes, there was. Now be quiet.
several other scenes between these wild, storm-tossed lovers you might care to eavesdrop upon, since they'll give you a better understanding of the currents sweeping these two upon violent shores, like this one. <laughs> the best champagne in New York. Now take off your little shoe. <laughs> Use my mallet, dear. <laughs> this croquet has brought the pink to your cheeks. Make your shot. <laughs> As is always the case in skullduggery of this sort, there is an in the meanwhile. So, in the meanwhile... In the Park Avenue home of Colonel James Fisk, Jr., the colonel and his lady. The children have been tucked away for the night, the servants snug in their quarters, as were the animals. A quiet hour, an hour for a man and his wife, and for family discussion. You fool! You cheat! Dear, the children, you'll awaken them. A woman like that. Have you no compassion in your heart? She's a widow. Ha, ha. Alone in the world. I, I am but her advisor. Ha, ha. Now that's all you are. What are you talking about? What all of New York is saying. And that is? Ha, ha. And that is? The most concerned is the last to know. Know what? Your precious widow and Edward Stokes. What? Ha, ha, Colonel. Now you know what I've been through. The aggravation. The shame. The heartache, the sorrow, the unrequited love. I'm sorry, Colonel. It, it's so late. It's Quimby. Where is uh, the the mistress? Is in her boudoir. Go away, Who is her. it, Quimby? It's not Mr. Stokes, ma'am. Well, well, good evening, Colonel. What's this I hear about you and that that scamp, Edward Stokes? Why, what have you heard? That you and he... Who told you that? My wife. You'd better go back to her, Colonel. Then it's true. I love him very much. Josie. Go back to your wife. I warn you. You warn me. You, Colonel? Listen to me. I'll ruin you. Please. Go home. You and Edward Stokes. Mark my word. I'll ruin the both of you. My promise to you, if it takes the rest of my life. The Colonel left. The Colonel was driven to his club where the Colonel spent the night. And the next morning, early... The colonel began the final week of his life. You are listening to Crime Classics and your host, 
Thomas Highland. A dead man's coat is the key to a killing. Its disappearance starts Mr. and Mrs. North off on a merry, mysterious manhunt tomorrow night. Don't miss Coat of Arms, a matter of murder confronting Pam and Jerry North. Tomorrow, listen to for John Lund is yours truly, Johnny Dollar, the insurance sleuth with the action-packed expense account on most of these same CBS radio stations. And now, once again, Thomas Highland and the second act of Crime Classics and his report to you on the checkered life and sudden death of Colonel James Fisk, Jr. I'd like to set the coordinates for you again, take a reading of exactly where we are in time and space. The year is 1872. The place is New York City. Now, 1872 was a vintage year for pearls in the bottom of champagne glasses, of fatted railroad stocks, and the diamond harvest was spectacular. The term rags to riches was coined on a day in this year when a raggedy sewing machine girl was summoned from her chores, taken by the hand, dressed in silk, then released into a gilded cage. New York City at this time was a center for many similar dramas, one of which we're concerning ourselves with. Colonel James Fisk, Jr. had compassion for a widow named Josie Mansfield. Josie Mansfield had compassion for the colonel's friend, Edward Stokes. The colonel, upon hearing of this arrangement, immediately went into action in a colonel-like manner. Your Honor, I want to swear out a warrant for the arrest of Edward S. Stokes for embezzlement. Why, certainly, Colonel. We'll have the culprit in jail in no time at all. Inside with you, Mr. Stokes. Jailer. Yes, sir, Mr. Stokes. Do you have the list? Yes, sir. Your living room furniture, the portraits, and the bed. I'll have them here in no time at all. Edward Stokes was a model prisoner for two days. He was then released when the charge against him was dropped. Not to be outdone, he went into action in a manner which gained the plaudits of his cronies. Your Honor, I want to swear out a warrant for the arrest of Colonel James Fisk, Jr. for false imprisonment. Why, certainly, Mr. Stokes. We'll have the culprit in jail in no time at all. Jailer. Yes, sir, Colonel. The living room furniture, your easy chair in the library, and the bed. I'll have them here in no time at all. War of nerves, tactics, and strategies, and reprisals. And the real victors, the gatherers of the loot, the lawyers. So the Colonel and Mr. Stokes called a truce waved white napkins at each other across a gleaming table at Delmonico's. Stokes, I think we both acted like children. I agree with you, Colonel. Hit me for your glass. Yeah. A toast. To a friendship. Our friendship, Colonel. Enough of jails and lawyers and arguments. Life is too short. I'll drink to that too. Colonel? And we can settle our affairs like men. I'll drink to that too. Uh, no, wait. Let's settle our affairs first. Delighted. There is only one thing which stands in our way. Obviously. Josie Manfield. You're right. Stokes, you're not ever to see her again. 
Colonel, you agree? Colonel, you're a fat, stupid fool. I accept that. But you're never to see Josie Mansfield again. Josie told me that if I saw you, I was to tell you you are a fat, stupid fool. And you are. I warned you once, Stokes. I'm not going to warn you again. Then I'll warn you. If you make any trouble, Colonel, you won't live to enjoy it. My promise to you. Good evening, Mr. Stokes. This is in the park. Josie. Josie. Josie, wake up. Edward. How nice, Edward. Dearest, listen. It's important. Are you awake? Well, of course. I just drowsed off. I was reading, waiting for you. And now you're here. Josie, listen. It's about Colonel Fisk. Oh, please don't talk about him. Not now. He's ruined me. What are you talking about? I'm a pauper. <laughs> Well, you're one of the wealthiest young men. No, no, not now. I don't have a penny. What happened? The stocks I had, all my assets. Well? The colonel forced down the value of the Erie Railroad stocks, wiped me out. Oh, Edward, I'm so sorry. Josie. Yes? I'm poor now. Do you want me to leave? Never come back? Darling, Edward. Darling, dear, Edward. Josie. We'll beat him. We'll destroy the colonel, you and I together. That's impossible. He's too powerful. He's a weakling. What? I can prove he's a weakling. He writes letters. Letters? I say them. And that's not all. What do you mean? Dealings he's had. Dishonest business dealings. Would you like to look at them? Dearest Josie, I love you so much. So that's why I thought it more discreet to hire a cab, Colonel. Surely you understand. I must tell you, Stokes, when I agreed to meet you, to ride with you in a hired hack at night... I explained the necessity of secrecy, sir. As indeed you did not. You merely said secrecy. That is why I must tell you I am confused. Have you made another decision about your thing? A tentative decision, sir. Thank you. Yes, it depends on you. Oh? I need money. I know. Badly. I know. Colonel? Yes? You love Josie very much, don't you? I understand you now, Stokes. I thought you were. Do you want me to reimburse you for the money you've lost? A quarter of a million dollars. I know. In return for which, you'll give up Josie. That's right. I'm sure there must be a name for you, Mr. Stokes. I'm sure of it. I had an experience last night. I had dinner at home with my wife. The children were with us. After dinner, I played on the floor with my children. I heard them laugh. I heard my wife laugh, too. And I laughed, too. And there was no other meaning behind my laughter except enjoyment of my family. Very touching and rewarding. Then you are not interested in my proposal. I'll get off at the next corner, Mr. Stokes. Tell the driver. Of course. Next corner, cabby. Well, Mr. Stokes, give my regards to Josie. Tell her I'm truly sorry for what's going to become of her. Goodbye, Mr. Stokes. Uh, Colonel, wait. I'm sorry we have nothing else to talk about. Except the letters. What letters? 
You have a rich way with words, Colonel. I congratulate you. I don't understand. Oh, of course you do. The letters you wrote to Josie. I see. All of them. I see. They could ruin you. Perhaps. I remember one of the letters opened with, Dearest Josie, my poor little widow, your sad tears still on my shoulder. $10,000. And another, Dear Josie, this morning I was at Tammany Hall and with Boss Tweed, arrangements were made to relieve the city. $10,000. A quarter of a million for the letters, Colonel. 10000 Or you may publish them or do what you want with them. Surely you're not serious. Good night, Mr. Stokes. 10000 Bring your letters to me tomorrow, and you shall get your money. Good night. An old almanac I have occasion to call on now and then says that Saturday, the 6th of January, in the year 1872, is the 66th anniversary of the Volunteer Fire Department of Roanoke, Virginia. Also, it predicts the day will be cold and clear with high westerly winds. So, we'll make an assumption. On a cold, clear Saturday morning, buffeted by the high westerly winds, Mr. Edward Stokes made his way to the Wall Street office of Colonel Fisk. Here, he received more coldness. And $10,000. Here he deposited with the colonel a stack of letters, wrapped in blue ribbon and sachet. Then Edward Stokes called on Josie Mansfield. He told her of the transaction. We must imagine that Josie's reaction went something like this. You idiot! You bumbling, spineless idiot! But Josie... I should have known better than to trust you with those letters. But $10,000 is better than nothing. If you'd had the courage... You told me 10000 or nothing. If you'd had the courage, he would have given you everything he owned. Why, the mere possession of the letter dated June 16th, 1871, would have been a fortune ten times the amount you got. But... But what? You have your jewels, this house. Surely you must be worth nearly a million yourself. I love you, dear Edward, but that's my money. You'll just have... What is it, Cindy? Uh, Miss Annie Wood wishes to speak with you. Tell her I'm busy. She said it's extremely urgent. Extremely urgent, Hello, Annie. <laughs> Josie. Dear Josie. And dear... Hello. The judge came to see me for lunch a little while ago. Judge? What are you talking about? Uh, judge Hitler. Well, I don't see... He's just come from court. He just signed a warrant. Yes? For the arrest of dear Mr. Stokes on the charge of blackmail. Colonel Fisk. Yes. The dear judge told me that the colonel asked him to sign such a warrant. Uh, Joseph. Yes? We'll be seeing each other more often. Won't you, Publication of the time. I quote. The next that was seen of Edward Stokes, as far as is known, was at a few minutes before four o'clock when he was walking carelessly up and down the main corridor of the Grand Central Hotel on the parlor floor. This corridor is one story above the street, is parallel with Broadway, and at its northern end is reached by a staircase from the street. Passing and repassing the head of the staircase, Stokes glanced furtively down the stairs. It was nearly four o'clock when Colonel James Fisk, Jr., 
drove up in a carriage to the door. Stepping out of his carriage and walking briskly across the pavement, he passed through the outer door of the hotel. When he had done so, he was heard to inquire for a certain Annette Latour. He was told she was in and started up the stairs. Good afternoon, Colonel. Don't. Don't. You'll ruin me. For the love of heaven. Someone help me. Stokes was restrained a block away. The colonel didn't die immediately. He was lifted by three bellhops and taken to chambers supplied by the management. Doctors were called, and the colonel joked with them, as he joked with his many friends who came to visit him. He joked with everybody. Next day, in the middle of a joke, he died. Thomas Stokes pleaded self-defense. He was convicted of manslaughter in the third degree. Josie Mansfield spent her remaining days with her aunt, Miss Annie Wood. In just a moment, Thomas Highland will tell you about next week's crime classic. This Wednesday night, screen hero Jeff Chandler plays a young man hired for an important job. A job of guarding the very much alive body of a notorious gangster. Hear the exciting details in the story entitled The Web on your Playhouse on Broadway. It's presented by CBS Radio this Wednesday night on most of these same stations. And here again is Thomas Highland. Next week, Long Melford in the county of Suffolk in England. The year? 1739. My report to you will be on the shrapnel body of Charles Drew Sr. Thank you. Good night. James Fisk Jr., tonight's crime classic, was adapted from the original court reports and newspaper accounts by Morton Fine and David Friedkin. The music was composed and conducted by Bernard Herman, and the program is produced and directed by Elliot Lewis. Thomas Highland is portrayed on radio by Lou Merrill. James Fisk, Jr. was played by William Johnstone. Featured in the cast were Mary Jane Croft, Martha Wentworth, Steve Roberts, Harry Bartell, Paula Winslow, and Charles Calvert. Bob Lamont speaking. Stay tuned now for Gary Moore with Arthur Godfrey's Talent Scouts, which follows immediately over most of these same stations. And remember, your news is always accurately reported when it comes from the CBS Radio Network. I'm Classics. I am Thomas Highland. I'm going to tell you another true crime story. Listen. The sound you hear is that of a man having his right-hand hook filed. It's Saturday night in London town, and he wants to be gleaming and presentable. 
The year is 1739, when a well-sharpened hook in London town was considered prudent. And Captain Rat, that's R-A-T-T, besides being a drunkard, a scoundrel, and a smuggler, was a prudent man. The young man handling the file is named Charles Drew, Jr., and he is performing this intimate little ironmongery because he needs a favor done. Captain Rat can help him out. He can supply the youngster with an alibi. And Junior badly needs one, for he has just shot his father dead. And tonight, my report to you on the shrapnel body of Charles Drew, Sr. <laughs> Crime Classics, a new series of true crime stories taken from the records and newspapers of every land from every time. Your host each week, Mr. Thomas Hyland, connoisseur of crime, student of violence, and teller of murders. Now, once again, Mr. Thomas Hyland. The year, as I've told you, is 1739, and the place? Long Melford in the county of Suffolk. Long Melford was a small, quiet town near London, and in it, a manor, and in the manor, a high-vaulted room of roaring fire, great shadows, and flying buttresses. Directly beneath the buttress that flew toward the west, two men, father, son, Charles Drew, Sr., Jr. Son? Yes, Father? The time has come for you and I to have a talk. I'm grateful. There are things vexing me. Perhaps what I have to tell you will answer your vexation. I'm very fortunate. I've tried to be a good father. A most excellent father. There's no one richer than you in Long Melford. Which is what I want to talk with you about. I know. I've drawn my latest will. This. What a gentle and most excellent father I have. Have you ear to what they say of you in the square? No, what do they say? That you are gentle and most excellent. What of the will? I'm leaving everything to your five sisters. And to you, sixpence. To lend, to spend, to start your fortune. But, but the last will, the one before this, you left me everything. Only a kind word to my five sisters. Mm. That was when you were eleven. Now you are nineteen. And a good son. To whom good? To you good. Nay, to the cutthroats and smugglers with whom you cousin. It is not so. This is so, I know it. You consort with people of ill fame. And also with Mr. Richardson's housekeeper. <laughs> Shall I explain this of Mr. Richardson's housekeeper to you? Twould be well. She is a most excellent housekeeper, and I wish to employ her for our own household. And this you have been trying to do for the last year. Well, she demands high payment. Our family can afford high payment. But I personally cannot, Father. Not until I inherit your fortune. And which with this new will will never be. Father. I don't scare, son. Wave that gun or... 
smattering of intelligence concerning 1739 ballistics. Ammunition was chiefly of two types, round or irregular. The former was manufactured by dropping chunks of molten lead from a great height, and when it reached the vat of water at the bottom of flight, it was round, due to centrifugal forces and gravity. Among men who puttered with this sort of thing, round shot was considered pretty fancy. Mostly, guns were loaded in this era by whatever iron junk was to hand. It should be recorded that Charles Drew, Jr. had stopped at a small junkyard on his way to talk with his dad. This is the reason the coroner found numerous pieces of irregular junk iron in dad's corpse. Let's see what dad's son is up to now. Scene, Ye Old Bunnery, a run-down bake shop on Abernathy Lane. The time, two hours later. Principals? Charles Drew, Jr., and uh, Mr. Humphrey, Bunbaker. That brings you to ye old bannery, Charlie. I want to know a thing. And that is what? Humphrey, how would you like a hundred pounds? <sighs> you ever saying a hundred pounds? All you must do is say you killed a man. I killed a man. My hundred pounds, please. You must say you killed my father. I killed your father. My hundred pounds. To the police. Sharp. Two hundred pounds now, and, and, and two hundred pounds after you've been to the police. You killed your poor old dad, Charlie? With this pistol. Huh? Leave you to be a very rich man? If someone were to go to the police and said he killed my father, he would be rich too. <laughs> With his neck in a gibbet. I would guarantee that the man would be released. Inside of a week, he would be released. There are jailers who would release such a man, persuaded correctly, with enough money. A guarantee, I... I know a guarantee. Write me a confession that you killed your poor, dear old dad. I will hide it. I will go to the police and confess the deed. If I'm still in jail in a week, I will tell the jailer where to find your confession. Wrap me up a half a dozen of your excellent buns, Humphrey. And I will give you 200 pounds, plus the price of them. Thereupon, Humphrey plucked a quill from his favorite goose in the back goose coop, sharpened it, and presented it to Charlie. With it, the lad wrote out his confession, paid up, and left. Humphrey waited for his wife, got permission to leave the shop, stopped at his house for a moment, then walked into the local constabulary and made history with this statement. If you boys are looking for a corpus, try 26 Bloom Street. If you're wondering what his name is, it's Charles Drew Seymour. If you're wondering who did the murder on him, it's me. And my name is Humphrey. The police, upon arriving at the appropriate room at 26 Bloom Street, understood immediately that foul play had been done. One of the constables was assigned to look in on the household of Mr. Humphrey, and there saw the Humphrey children at play at Thistledee-Doo, a game usually played with marbles, but by the Humphrey children played with pieces of iron junk, which latter were of a size that could easily be rammed down the muzzle of a gun. The gun was there, too, under a pillow on Mr. Humphrey's side of the bed. 
Mrs. Humphrey, who in the meanwhile had returned home, shook her head philosophically when apprised of the situation. It is recorded that Mrs. Humphrey's parents had both been put away as confirmed smugglers, a felony against the Crown. The next day, in jail... Nice of you to visit me, Charlie. Yes. What news do you bring? When am I to be released? I I went to see Sir Roger Firebrace. Well, how is Sir Roger? Dead. Tis a pity, too, for he would have gotten your release in an ounce for a few hundred pounds. Don't forget, laddie, I've got your confession. You've got till Sunday. The youngster, however, knew another man of note, Sir Chauncey Fenwick. Sir Chauncey was compassionate and understood the situation exactly, but unfortunately had just had one of his periodic fallings out with the magistrate's wife. But Sir Chauncey did not send the lad away empty-handed. He suggested an old sea dog named Captain Rat, uh, with two T's. Um, what's the fire, Mr. Drew? You'll be missing me hook and be scraping my wrist. Oh, I'm very sorry, Captain Rat. Nervous, beat you? I, I travelled here to London to talk to you. Yeah, you see, Sir Fenwick sent you to me. Sir Fenwick took five hundred pounds and said he could do nothing with it. You're my last resort, Captain Rat. A wee bit here, Mr. Drew. Aye. No. What can old Captain Rat do for you? Do you have any influential friends? What be you needing? An alibi. For yourself? For a friend. Aye, tis always for a friend. What about him? He confesses he killed my father. And he be your friend? By killing my father, he made me rich. I bear him no malice. And for him, you want an alibi. Why? Why not let him rot? Why, Zanny? You, you see... You kill your daddy, Zanny? <laughs> Keep the hook, You almost stuck me. <laughs> Pardon, young gentleman. An alibi you wanted it for a friend. Uh, to see what? That my friend is making a mistake. That he is having hallucinations. That he did not kill my father because he was with you the night my father died. And where, Mr. Drew, will that leave you? Oh, since one has confessed to the crime, it is doubtful whether I would be charged with it. A sly one. Beant you a sly one, young gentleman. Beant you. Oh. <laughs> I'll travel down to the jail with you and have a talk with your friend. How's that, huh? Very good. I, uh, <clears throat> I'll need 500 pounds for expenses. Oh, I, uh, yes. Now. Yes. <laughs> Is wasting a Saturday night and all coming down here to the dungeon speaking to you, Mr. Humphrey. But I don't mind. And you're going to furnish me an alibi, Captain. Uh, this be a strange one. I explained it all to you, Captain. You kill your dad. This one here says he done it. Now the both of you want me to say he couldn't have done it because he was with me. That lad thought it up. 
He's the bright one, not me. My plan will work. By the time you get Humphrey out of here and the police begin to dig about again, I'll be in Paris. Lost. I will change my name and with my fortune I... Uh, for your fortune, I will do it. I give you 500 pounds. Ah, the pittance. Your fortune, Mr. Drew. Except what he's promised to me. What about it, lad? I... No. Taylor! Pleasant talking to both of you. It's Saturday night, Charlie. What will you do? It's Saturday night, Charlie. I've got your confession hidden away. And tomorrow's Sunday. What will you do? And they looked at each other there in the dungeon the jailed and the young visitor. And the question hung there. What would Charlie do? It's Saturday night, and tomorrow is Sunday. What will you do, Charlie? listening to Crime Classics and your host, Thomas Hyland. Tomorrow night, hear the premiere performance of 21st Precinct, a new hard-hitting mystery series revealing the inner workings of the world's largest police force. 21st Precinct, produced by CBS radio team that gave you gangbusters, is a program you'll want to listen for every Tuesday night on most of these same stations. Premiere performance tomorrow night on CBS radio. And now, once again, Thomas Hyland and the second act of Crime Classics. And his report to you on the shrapneled body of Charles Drew, Sr. It's a short, dusty road from Long Melford to London. Not only that, but these days it's hard to find. In its day, however, it was remarkable for two things. The brothers Shoes Spooner, Dick and Harry, who embarked on a career of highwomanship on the morn of June 3, 1735, were hung on the eve of that same day from the highest branch of an elm at a fork on Long Melford Road. The other historic feature of Long Melford Road is the fact that on a Sunday morning, a young murderer, Charles Drew Jr., and his lady love... Rode a coach down its ruts. Oh, he's a ranting, roving lad. He is a brisk and a bonny lad. Be tied what may, I will be with. And follow the boy with the white cockade. Liz. What is it, dearie? Shut up. Everyone's singing that song, dearie. It's the rain. Please, shut up. Oh, duck, what's the matter? You're the cause of it all. What all, Duck? By killing my father. You wanted a way to have all his money? 
I told you a way to do. That's all. Yes. Oh, duck, dearie. You'll see when we get to London what a time I'll show you. Make you forget. Since I've killed him, I've done everything wrong. Will you listen to Liz again? Will you? Surely I'll listen, Poodle. Oh, duck. <laughs> Monkey. Will you listen to Liz? Surely. When we get to London, we change your name, and you forget about Humphrey. But if I, I don't get him out of jail tonight, he'll show the police my confession. But you'll be in London. Start forgetting about him right now. <laughs> All right. And so they fled to London Town, little knowing that they had made a road famous. In London, they located a little-known hideaway called Bonham Carter's Thorny Bull Inn on the corner of Asquith and Chiswick. The lad registered under an alias, Thomas Roberts. Liz, however, registered in her own name, Elizabeth Bathall. As this was going on back in Long Melford Jail, where Mr. Humphrey was, there transpired this. In one hour, Barthy, I'm getting out of here. You be a fool. How a fool? Where'd you ever have so much money? What bun are you baking, wifey? This bun. The lad giving you money, all that money, and he's good for more. Aye. All we want. Hmm. He's a rich one, that's true. We can get more money before you show his confession. How? You said he fled. His Liz told me they were off to London town. You could write him a letter and say as long as he paid you 20 pounds a day, you'd be willing to stay where you are. 20 pounds a day? That's a robbery. I will go to London and find Master Drew and present him with the letter. How will you find him? Last year and a bath of him. London, eh, Barton? London. What of the children? Oh, Mrs. Nickelrod says she will take care of them. And you, alone in London? So Mrs. Humphrey went to London. A few observations about Mrs. Humphrey. Wash away the flour and the excess dough. Put on long sleeves to hide the muscles made prominent from kneading bun dough. Comb the hair, exchange shoes for boots, and Gertrude Humphrey was rather uh, presentable. When she went to London, Mrs. Humphrey did all of these things. Plus making a mental note not to laugh too much. Not only because of the horrible sound she made but also because of the mischievous twitch it brought on, which she could not control. So, off she went to this place, to that, to this pub, to that, asking for a Mr. Drew. I should like to comment here that in 1739, the gin was of an excellent Holland distillation. However, its chemistry had a peculiar reaction with Gertrude Humphrey. Though she fought it, and though she laughed not at the most hilarious joke, including the historically famous one about Lady Mumbley and the Troubadour, 
the gin caused her to twitch mischievously. This attracted to her London dandies, who plied her with more Holland gin, and who promised her help in finding Mr. Drew, and who never did. But Gertrude never lost sight of her mission. And one night in a pub in Covent Garden... Mister! Mister! What's your pleasure, dearie? Well, now, dearie... I want a gin. Uh, gin for the lady. What's your name, dearie? Gertie. Gertie? Aye. Here's your gin, Gertie. Pick up. Well, now, dearie... Is your name Drew? Is that what you want my name to be? I'm looking for Mr. Drew. Mr. Drew, is there a Mr. Drew? Yes. Oh, now, Gertie, I'm the one who's bought you the gin. Yes, my name is Drew. <laughs> you ain't the Drew I'm looking for. Well, now, why do you say that? Oh, here they are, lad. Oh, I'm the fellow who's bought her the gin. Here's a guinea, my lad. Find another lady who likes gin. Oh, oh, I will, like Golder. Thank you. Bye, Gertie. Oh. <laughs> oh, now, now, why do you weep, pretty one? You're so beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> Always crying, beautiful thing. Gin for the lady. Now, 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 stop that weeping. Ah, here's your gin. I say, mischievous wink you have. Is that truly your name? Truly, Ladybird, it is. Ladybird, Ladybird. And you were looking for me? Ladybird. My name is Drew, and uh, you shouted for Mr. Drew. So beautiful you are. What do you want of me? I have a letter for a man named Drew. Really? Oh, I want you, David. I really do. Then give it to me. You must turn your back now. Right you are. Yeah. <laughs> you want a conniver, you are. <laughs> His name really was Drew, Timothy Drew. It's one of those coincidences in history which gave rise to the old saw, truth is stranger than fiction, as they say. And he was a curious man, and a proud man, jealous of his name, Drew. He had heard his name mentioned, and he was forced to find out why. He read the letter then and there. He read it again, a little later, out loud, to the police. And my missus told you have gone to London with Liz Bathall. But, Charlie, my lad, you shall pay me 20 pounds a day, else I will tell that you have murdered your poor daddy. I have your paper, which you confessed you did, right where nobody but me knows where. So when my wife hands you this letter, you better give her money and find a way to keep it, uh, giving it to her, your faithful servant, Mr. Walter Humphrey. Gentlemen... Here in London is a man named Charles Drew. He has murdered his father, and he bears the same surname as I. I cannot permit this deed to go unpunished.
Even in 1739, the London police were thorough, and, goaded by the enormity of the crime and spurred and accompanied by a man whose name had been besmirched, they combed the alleys, hostelries, pubs, dens. It was late on a moist Thursday morning when Timothy Drew happened into Bonhomme Carter's Thorny Bull Inn on the corner of Asquith and Chiswick. Bonhomme Carter denied the presence of a Mr. Charles Drew, but affirmed that a Liz Bathal was most certainly a guest there. He directed Timothy to Liz's chambers. Who is it? Open the door. No games, dearie. It's too early. Who is it? A representative of the police. Why didn't you say? May I come in? If you be the police, you can do anything, ain't that so? Thank you. I ain't done nothing. Is your name Elizabeth Bathor? It is. Do you know a man named Charles Drew? What's he look like? I don't know. Then how can I tell if I know him? Here, here, what sort do you take me for? There's no one in my closet. Ah. What is this young man doing under your bed, madam? Oh, a man? What's he... Quiet, woman. Is your name Charles Drew? I'm talking to you under the bed there. Is your name Charles yes, Drew? Sir. Come out from under there, sir. That's right, sir. My name is Charles Drew, sir. And did you kill your father? It would be a small life living as I have been. Yes, Yes, I killed my father. I have the original issue of a gazette dated January 22, 1740, from which I'd like to read. The melancholy proof that when a man has abandoned all religious principles and has suffered his depraved appetites and passions to govern his reason was shown yesterday when Charles Drew, Jr. was hanged in Long Melford. Since the hanging elm on Long Melford Road had recently been demolished to make a keel for the British Navy, a new gibbet was erected. This gibbet was equipped with a new mechanical device invented by Mr. Douglas Langford of Eastburn. Mr. Langford is to be congratulated. just a moment, Thomas Highland will tell you about next week's crime classic. The shrapnel body of Charles Drew Sr., tonight's crime classic, was adapted from the original court reports and newspaper accounts by Morton Fine and David Friedkin. The music was adapted from themes of the period and conducted by Bernard Herman, and the program is produced and directed by Elliot Lewis. Thomas Highland is portrayed on radio by Lou Merrill. Charles Drew Jr. was played by Terry Kilburn and Liz by Betty Harford. 
Featured in the cast were Paul Fries, Ben Wright, Irene Tedrow, William Johnstone, and Anthony Ellis. Bob Lamont speaking. And here again is Thomas Highland. Next week, the office directly below that occupied by Oliver Wendell Holmes is the scene of a catastrophe. The place, Harvard Medical School, the time, 1849. My report, on the terrible deed of Dr. Webster. Thank you. Good night. It's big news when a former publisher, soldier, and congressman, the famous son of a famous father, stars in a new radio series. And this Wednesday night, you'll want to listen with all your might when CBS Radio stars Will Rogers, Jr. as Rogers of the Gazette over most of these same stations. Rogers of the Gazette tells the story of a small-town newspaper editor, what he stands for, and also what he refuses to stand for. Premier performance this Wednesday on CBS Radio. Stay tuned now for Gary Moore with Arthur Godfrey's Talent Scouts, which follows immediately over most of these same stations. And remember, America now listens to 110 million radio sets and listens most to the CBS radio network.